Qui transtulit sustinit. Qui transtulit sustinit. This is the sermon title this morning. How many people know why this is the sermon title? Here's the answer to the question. How many people knew that that was the state motto of Connecticut? All right, a few people. Well, wait, literally one person. Okay. <laughs> Two people, okay. It's in Latin, qui transtulit sustinit. Um, somewhere in between these uh, um, other state mottos, the um, state motto of New York is also Latin, but it's just one word, excelsior. That means ever upward. That's kind of simple, one word, excelsior. A little bit more complicated is Massachusetts. If anybody can quote this right now, you can preach the rest of the sermon. Okay. Ense petit placidum sub libertate quietem. So that, that's also Latin, a little bit longer, a little bit more complicated, but listen to what it means. By the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. All right, so that's the Massachusetts. It reminds me of the Virginia state motto, thus ever to tyrants. So think of these mottos that in the days when this country was founded, what was going on where they would need mottos that were so warlike in a sense? The Connecticut state motto, qui transtulit sustinit. This is actually this paraphrase from Psalm 80, our psalm this morning. And it means, he who transplanteth yet sustaineth. He who transplants will sustain. This is the promise of Psalm 80. And you think about these stories of those that founded the state of Connecticut. You might know in the heart of our city, New Haven, there's this circle, and from that circle, three roads diverge, and they all head up basically towards West Rock, Whaley, Goff, and Dixwell, because these were three men that had to flee for their lives from the King of England, who sent soldiers to track them down. First to Massachusetts, they fled to Connecticut, and they took refuge up on West Rock in Judge's Cave. And they may well have meditated while up there on Psalm 80. They certainly were, we have th this uh, historical records that they were resting in a Christian faith, this faith that the God that had taken them from England to this strange new land had transplanted them, would sustain them somehow. Somehow through the cold winter living in a cave with people coming after them to kill them. Qui transtulit sustinit. It's, we're not, we're still maybe a cold winter, but we're not in a cave this morning. Here we are in this sanctuary together. We've come in the name of Jesus. We've already worshiped him. We've already confessed our sins. We're together in the name of Jesus. And we're here because we are wanting him to strengthen our assurance that qui transtulit sustenit. Do you have a sense? Do you have a trust? Do you have a peace that God has you right where he wants you? 
that it's not random that you're here and now. And that not only is it not random that you're here right now, but that he will, in fact, sustain you where you are. One of the, a former mayor of, um, of New Haven, um, her motto, uh, uh, Mayor Grosso, I can't remember her first name, but I drive across her street every day. Um, but her, her, her motto running for election was, bloom where you are planted. I wonder if she was riffing off of the state motto, but who knows? Do you have a sense that not only is your life not random, but you are placed here for a purpose, not only that, but that you will be sustained and empowered. You will actually bloom right here and now. Qui transtulit sustinit. This is a faith. The early apostles, as Paul preached in Acts 17, he preached that life is not random and your life is not random. It's not chaos. It's not from chance, but he preached Acts 17, that God has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of your dwelling place, that you should seek God and find him, that your life has been determined, your time and place has been set by God's kind decree so that you can seek him and find him. This is qui transtulit sustinit. This is this faith in a God who sustains. But of course, we don't always have that faith. And we think of, I think, of how um, Pascal gave voice to this, the French philosopher. He gave voice to it this way. He said, either the heart trusts, now he didn't use the phrase qui transtulit sustinit, but he essentially said that either the heart trusts that God has you where he wants you, or this is how the heart voices itself. I do not know who put me into this world, nor even what the world is, nor what I am myself. I'm, in fact, I am terribly ignorant about everything. I see the terrifying spaces of the universe hemming me in, and I find myself attached to this one little corner of this vast expanse without knowing why I have been put in this place rather than that place, or why the brief span of life allotted to me should have been assigned to one moment rather than another of all the eternity which went before me and all that which will come after me. I see only infinity on every side, hemming me in like an atom or like the shadow of a fleeting moment. All I know is that I must soon die, but what I know least about is this very death which I cannot evade. And just as I do not know whence I come, so I do not know whither I am going. All I know is that when I leave this world, I shall fall forever into nothingness or into the hands of a wrathful God. But I do not know which of these two states is to be my eternal lot. Such is my state, full of weakness and uncertainty. And my conclusion from all this is that I must pass my days without a thought of seeking what is to happen to me. Pascal says it's a pretty stark either or. Either the heart is trusting in a God who has us here for a time and a place and a purpose, or the heart is lost. Well, we're here because God gives us this gift, this gift of faith. And this morning in particular, we look at this particular gift of Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is given to us so that we may put our hope and trust in Christ. 
in this sermon series as we preach through some of the beautiful songs of the Christ. Psalm 80 is one of the clearest and most messianic of the Psalms. It is a song of the coming Christ. It is a song of the Christ. It is compelling and beautiful. It is given to us as a gift. Last week in the Songs of the Christ series, we heard how Christ is the Word. And he makes his word. We, we heard how he makes his word so beautiful and multifaceted, like as Preston used the image of a kaleidoscope. So this morning, we are going to look into Psalm 80. We're going to look into it. It's a kaleidoscope. And as we look into it, we're going to see beautiful things. We're going to see the beauty that this song is a song of the Christ in at least seven different ways each facet given by God to build your faith this morning, your trust, your hope in Christ, so that our hearts will not be lost in the cosmos. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for Christ, the living word, and now this gift of Psalm 80 to us, a psalm that sustained the early settlers of the state of Connecticut, a psalm given to us this day in this Advent season, to sustain and strengthen our faith and hope. Open up our hearts more and more to the riches and beauty of your love. We just heard read for us from John 15 that abiding in you is not some vague and far off concept. It means to abide in your love. So open our hearts to receive more and more of your love this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you got here early enough, you may have had time to look at the meditation prior to the worship service. It's in your bulletin on page three. It's an excerpt from the longest and most explicit, uh, explicitly uh, faith-centered of W.H. Uh, Auden's oratory for the time being, a Christmas oratorio. Perhaps the greatest poet, English-speaking poet anyway, I don't read other languages, I know a phrase or two of Latin, as you can tell, but that's about it. The greatest English-speaking poet, as I would think, of the 20th century. And in this excerpt, he puts, from this long oratorio, he puts it this way, the violent howling of winter and war, he wrote this, you can see in the, during World War II. The violent howling of winter and war has become like a jukebox tune that we dare not stop. We are afraid of pain, but more afraid of silence. For no nightmare of hostile objects could be as terrible as this void. This is the abomination. This is the wrath of God. Like Auden, we live in a fallen and war-torn world. The country that many of us are citizens of, the United States, is still in the midst of its longest war. We live in a fallen, war-torn world. Auden experienced the horrors of World War II, writes about them, and his challenge as he wrote this 
poem about Christmas was how can a person be asked to bloom where they're planted in this fallen, war-torn world? How can anyone be asked to seek to be empowered and to be sustained instead of just to merely escape all the violent howlings of winter, all the pain, all the hostile objects falling on our heads? How can anyone be asked to bloom where they are planted. This is why Psalm 80 was written. Psalm 80 was also written in the midst of this fallen, war-torn world. In fact, most likely written right after the Assyrian invasion had wiped 10 of the 12 Jewish tribes off of the map. The northern kingdom with 10 tribes, no more, gone. All that's left of Israel is tiny little Judah, two tribes. And the psalmist gives voice to this same plea of Auden, which is this pain that we are experiencing. There is something worse than pain, O Lord, and that is your silence. Have you forgotten us? Have you abandoned us? Are all you going to, is all you going to feed us with Tears. This is the experience of Psalm 80 written into this world. And as we look into it now, we look into this remarkable kaleidoscope and we're going to see often seven different facets of it. The first thing we're going to see, and by the way, this seven point outline is in your bulletin sort of in the takeaway section of the notes of the sermon. So here's the first facet. We're going to see that this psalm, this is a song of the Christ. And what we mean by that is, first of all, it is a song that longs for the Christ. In the midst of a war-torn world, thinking of perhaps Whaley and Goff and Dixwell living in a cave up on West Rock, in the midst of a cold winter with soldiers on their tail trying to capture them and probably kill them. In the midst of this war-torn experience, the particular hardships that we may be experiencing now, these questions arise and these questions give voice to the longing, the longing for something new, the longing for the Christ. Verse 4 Oh, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Verse 12, why have you broken down the walls of your city? We're just being looted and plundered by everyone that passes by. You transplanted us. Will you sustain us? This psalmist goes back to the history of the people of God. We were in Egypt. You took us out from Egypt. You rescued us and brought us into this promised land. You transplanted us. And now this is what's happening? Have you forgotten us? Come to save us. That's how the psalm begins. Verse 2, come to save us. And so first of all, this song of the Christ is a song 
that longs for the Christ. Secondly, though, it doesn't just long for the Christ. This psalm promises the Christ. We have a promise, a remarkable promise. As we said, one of the comment, different commentators have pointed out, this may be one of the most, most messianic of all the psalms. What will you do with us now, O Lord? And this is what the psalmist asks God to do. Verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. We, your people, you've called us your vine. Have regard for this vine. But, now listen to this. Don't just have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, but have regard for the Son whom you made strong for yourself. Verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. You may know that when Jesus came as the Messiah, as the Christ, that his favorite self-reference his favorite title for himself was Son of Man. This song promises that the Son of Man will come. In fact, this wonderful commentary, this New Testament uh, commentary on the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament, this wonderful big thick volume, puts it this way. Psalm 80 envisages the exaltation of the messianic king as a new Adam, a new humanity, which exercises authority over the rebellious beast nations as the summit of God's creation activity. Reading this, looking into Psalm 80 as a kaleidoscope, looking into it with faith, the heart sees this is about a great messianic king the great son of man who is going to become the new humanity, the new Adam, the new Israel, the vine. And so this Psalm 80 not just longs for the Christ, it doesn't just promise the Christ, but thirdly, this is why we are preaching it in this Advent season. This song was fulfilled by the Christ. It really couldn't be clearer. Sometimes people take images from the Old Testament and imagine that Christ has fulfilled them. And I'm not the arbiter of all those things. Sometimes those, those are just speculations and not correct. And sometimes they were good, accurate guesses. But this is not a case of speculation. Here we have this Psalm talking about Israel as the vine. But we already heard read for us today from John 15, where Jesus makes it explicit. I am the true vine, he says. He is the fulfillment of this psalm. This psalm was fulfilled by the Christ. I am the true vine. And so now, when verse 8 is about God bringing a vine out of Egypt, we see even some of the references to Christ as an infant being taken down to Egypt and then brought back out of Egypt. He is fulfilling this. 
we see then that when this psalm asks God to have regard for this vine, have regard for the son whom you made strong for yourself, that this is really asking God to have regard for the same person, Jesus, who is both the vine and the son of man. Jesus, the fulfillment of this great song of the Christ. What Israel had only begun to be, as Derek Kidner puts it, Jesus wholly was and is. But this song is richer still. It is a song that longs for the Christ. It promises the Christ. It's fulfilled by the Christ. But listen to this. This is actually a song that was and is sung by the Christ. There's a reason why a number of our psalms in the Old Testament have these little uh, pre uh, beginnings um, where in this italic you can see in your English versions the phrase to the choir master. So this isn't new information to any of us that have been part of the church for some time that God gives his word to us to be sung the Psalms in particular, to be sung. This is a song that Christ himself sung when he was here in the flesh. And we already had read for us this morning in the assurance of our forgiveness about the present tense of what Christ is doing right now in the present tense. Hebrews 7 he always lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8 says the same thing. He is in the present tense, interceding for us now. He's praying these prayers for us now. These songs that he sang while on earth, he sings in heaven now on our behalf. Whenever you enter into singing with the Lord, you already have the great choir master, Christ himself, leading the singing. But looking at it a little bit more deeply, in this idea that Christ was singing these songs while here on earth, here's a fifth aspect of this being a song of the Christ. This song that asks God who transplanted a people from one place to another to sustain that people, this song Jesus has in mind, knowing that he, of course, was transplanted from one place to another. But his transplanting was upside down compared to ours. The people of God were rescued from a horrific place of slavery. It was remarkable good news to be, it was New York State motto, Excelsior. It was ever upward to be rescued out of Egypt into the promised land. But Christ takes it the other way and says, I who have lived with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity in perfect peace, perfect placidity, perfect joy and rejoicing with the heavens, with the angels and the archangels, I will leave that place and enter into this war-torn world. I ask you to transplant me into the warfare. And he's singing these songs, needing sustaining, 
in this calling that his father had given him. He's the one singing these songs as well. If, if you think this is speculation, of course it's not. Look at what Hebrews chapter 5 says, how, how this passage puts it, describing Jesus' life here on earth. Hebrews 5 puts it this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There it is. This fifth thing we see this morning, that these, this psalm sustained the Christ during his own earthly ministry. In the days of his flesh, he offered up these prayers with loud cries and tears. He, of course, entered into an experience where it was arguably much worse for Israel than even when Psalm 80 was written. It wasn't just that the 10 tribes were wiped off the map. All 12 tribes are now off the map. Now this is Rome. Rome has taken over. Christ enters into this war-torn experience and is sustained by singing this song of the Christ. This song, of course, was part of his daily bread. You remember this is how he answers the devil in those temptations. The devil says, you're hungry, here's some food. And Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. The word of God will sustain me. I offer up Psalm 80. It sustains me as I offer up these prayers with cries and pleas. This was his daily bread while on earth. This was a song of the Christ in that sense as well. All of this is remarkable good news. But now we get to the here and now. The I always forget what year it is. December of 2019 here in New Haven, Connecticut. We see that as we look into Psalm 80, the song of the Christ, that we also see that this Christ gives this song to us to sing. We don't merely watch other people sing it. We sing it. We are the vine. Israel, the vine of God. Christ comes and says, I am the new Israel, the true vine. But now he says, abide in me. You are the vine. And then uses imagery of us as the vine in Matthew 20 and in Revelation 14. He gives this song to us to sing now. In fact, again, one of the commentators puts it this way. The connection between, in this psalm, between the king and Israel is so close that they appear to blur together. Because we have now been made the vine. We've been brought into Christ, the true vine. And we're part of him now. We abide in him. He abides in, love, in us. We sing this song. This song is a song that we offer up. And it sustains us. And so, of course, that leads us to the final bit of how. It's not the final point of the sermon. Don't get your hopes up. But it's the final aspect of this being a great song of the Christ. 
This song sustains us now, the people of the Christ, as we await his future coming. You may remember, or you may be learning for the first time, as I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, I learned for the first time this year uh, this wonderful, I just, I, I can't encourage this book strongly enough to you, this book that my daughter gave me, a collection of Fleming Rutledge's sermons and essays about Advent. And in, in, this, in this collection of sermons and essays, she makes the point that in the history of the church, the Advent season was not about the Advent, the coming of Christ in his first coming. That's the Christmas season. The Advent season was in confidence that he came once. It's a Christmas type of year, time of the year. We look to his having come once, trusting that he is coming again. It is the Advent of the second coming. We are now in between his first coming and second coming. That's not rocket science for the Christian to understand this. What do we need in order to bloom where we're planted right now? How will God sustain us as we await his future coming? Well, his word. His word sustains us, and Psalm 80 sustains us. And look in particular at this remarkable way this psalm sustains us. When it gets near the end of the psalm, verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. We see that this appeal that the psalmist makes in the first part of the psalm and throughout the psalm, he is appealing, and really every appeal appeals to this. He appeals to God on the basis of God's love on the basis of God's kindness, on the basis of God's grace, on the basis of God's mercy. He knows the heart of God and asks for, God, you are the God of love. On the basis of your love and your mercy and your kindness and your grace and your tenderness, come and save us. But now what he does is he appeals to God on the basis of God's faithfulness the promises God has made. You have promised to sustain your people. If you can't appeal to him on the basis of his love, then appeal to him on the basis of his faithfulness, justice. He has made a promise he's going to keep it. Of course, we appeal to him on both. <coughs> you... Um, How many of you are, are lawyers or training to be lawyers? Okay, so some of you, nobody's admitting to it actually, but I know <laughs> some of you are. No, it's a beautiful thing, it is. And, and um, there's the, apparently there's this aphorism, uh, I think maybe an, a, a longtime professor at Yale Law School is credited with having uh, said this, but it's essentially um, when you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. When you have the law on your side, pound the law. When you have neither on your side, pound the table. 
The wisest lawyers apparently follow that sort of advice. When you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. When you have the law on your side, pound the law. When you have neither on your side, pound the table. Well, we're not going to pound the table. That's a sign of weakness. We're not, as we're looking for God to sustain us and give us a faith and a trust and a hope that he has us here for a purpose, we're not going to just simply start screaming out nonsense. We appeal to God on the basis of both the facts and the law. We appeal to him. We have both on our side. We have both his compassion, his tenderness, and his faithfulness, his promises. This song of the Christ sustains us. So this all leads us then now to the final bit, the conclusion. What do we do with all this? This song of the Christ, written in a time where the northern kingdom had been wiped off the map, made use of by Christians throughout the ages, including some of the early settlers of Connecticut, as a promise from God, the God who transplanted me will sustain me. The God who transplanted his people will sustain his people. And so we, in this time and place, here in the 21st century, and the particular challenges we face as the people of God, the particular, in the, in the words of Auden, the particular violent objects falling on our heads from above, the particular violent howlings of winter, the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil upon the people of God. How can we bloom where we are planted? How can we, the congregation of Christ Presbyterian Church, called not like, like Pascal's imagined wanderer who just doesn't know why he lives here or there or anywhere, but a people of God that know God has called us here and placed us here. How can we bloom where we are planted? We bloom, of course, by trusting in God, resting in Christ, putting our hope in him. But we're not going to do that in a static, passive, dull, dismissive, rote, uh, lifeless way. Instead, we are going to let our sense of wonder in who he is and what he has done expand and expand and expand. We have a little model of that in the psalm itself, and it's a model for how our faith needs to let its vision of who God is get bigger and bigger and bigger. The little model is in the recurring refrain that happens three times, the chorus in this song of the Christ. Verse 3, verse 7, verse 19. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. But the first time, the first plea, restore us, O God. The second time, restore us, O God of hosts. The third time, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Restore us, O God, this sense of who God is. But now a deeper sense, a deeper sense of wonder. God is surrounded by a host of the holy, a host of the angels and archangels. He is the Lord of hosts. And then, and then finally, expanding the, your vision of who God is by bringing in this mighty self-title of God, Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am. And so we bloom where we're planted when we trust in the Lord, but not in the static way, 
A trust in the Lord that lets your sense of who this Lord is grow and grow and grow with each day and month and year of your life. How can we grow in our confidence and assurance that qui transtullet sustenet, that he who transplanteth yet sustaineth, that we will bloom where we are planted by not only praying, not only letting this sense of wonder expand and expand for who God is and what he's done, but we use as a glorious refrain, a chorus for our life, our own daily bread, as it were, our own holy habit, our own rhythm. The chorus of this psalm, which simply says, let your face shine that we may be saved. This is repeated over and over. Let your face shine, O Lord. What is it that you're asking God to do as he looks towards you? Again, we remember this William, the W.H. Auden poem, that there's something worse than pain and a war-torn world, and that something worse is the silence of God, the God who has nothing to do with you. No, we want this God to come near to us, but when he comes near to us, we're asking him to shine his face on us. Make this your holy habit, your daily bread, your, the chorus of your life, asking God to have his face shine on us that we may be saved. But don't just make this the chorus by singing it and asking for it. Make it the chorus by receiving the answer by faith. That when you ask him to shine his, faith, his, his face on you, you receive by faith that he says, yes, and of course, my face shines on you. What does that even mean? It means, one, one of the commentators, the glow of kindness and friendship. We all know what that means, this simple vernacular phrase when you're around someone and that person's face lights up. What does that mean? That person is glad you are there. When you ask God, God, make your face light up as you look on us, what does God say? By faith, because Christ, the Son of Man, has come and fulfilled this psalm already, the Father always says yes. His face is always shining towards us. This shine of acceptance and favor. I wrap up with this wonderful little phrase from Zephaniah chapter 3. God rejoices over you with gladness. He exults over you with loud singing. This God sings the song of the Christ with joy over you. Let's pray. Lord, we, I don't know that much Latin, but I do pray. Qui transtullet sustinet. We do pray, O oh Lord, you are the great and wonderful covenant-keeping God who in Christ has said yes and amen to all of our needs. You will sustain us in these war-torn years, and we pray that you'd give us the faith to receive your love so that we would be sustained, so that we would bloom where we are planted, so that we would flourish and be the people of God that can be a blessing to not only ourselves, but to our city and our state and our country and our 
continent and our hemisphere and our world, and most of all, bringing you joy, O Lord, that you would sing and rejoice over us. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. This Christ, when he came, sung these songs, and they sustained him, and he taught these songs to his disciples. And as he gathers them for one last worship service together on the night that he was betrayed, he sings a final song over them before going to the cross. And in this song, he takes bread, and after blessing, he breaks it, he gives it to them, and he says, take, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is, my, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is a Christ who teaches us how to sing. And by coming to us now with these physical symbols, he is reminding our faith that just as certainly as you can feel this bread and taste this cup and see it and smell it, your physical senses are aware of the presence of these elements, Christ is reminding you that he is present by his spirit just as surely as you have a soul. His Holy Spirit is with you in your spirit. So this is the sort of song that causes us to abide in him and abide in his love and give our whole lives to him. Part of that, of course, is giving of the abundance of it that he's given to us back to the kingdom of God. So if the servant leaders would come forward now. 